It's Monday, December 31st, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 190 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for checking in for another conversation between myself and an incredibly accomplished, world-renowned, and unbelievably cool musician. Today, the incomparable Nels Klein swings by for a second go-round on the mics. And it's a good one. It's a really good one. Before we get into it, Happy New Year. Today is December 31st. Uh, tomorrow will be 2019. And um, 2018 was a fucking pain in the ass, wasn't it? I mean, also at least on a global level, which is, you know, pretty pretty big. On a global level, the year sucked. But we made it. We're here. Uh, I do think going in, going into 2019, we're going to see some changes. I think uh, I think the pendulum might be swinging back. I, ho- I hope I'm not talking too soon about it. Um, but from the perspective of of you having me in your ears right now, this this show, I think we did good this year. This will be the 47th episode this year. Pretty good. There's a lot of good stuff coming in the new year. Uh, if if you like the show and you want to help it keep moving along, go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast, become a, a monthly donor, and we can continue as a listener-supported show. Um, Nels Klein, he's back. Nels was on the show uh, back in 2014. I think it was episode 65, maybe? 64, something like that. And um, it was great. Certainly one of the episodes that over the years people have commented to me the most on, um, including my mom. My mom, uh, I remember when the episode came out, she said, oh, this guy nails, this guy nails seems really cool. She was really into the conversation. And uh, so was I. You know, Nels is a good talker. And um, today's a good one. You know, I, I've said it before when I had when I post, you know, sequel episodes that, you know, I'm asking the people that I, I just really enjoy talking to to come back. And certainly with, you know, what I enjoy is that the biographical information is out of the way and we can just talk shit and chew the fat, which is, you know, originally what I wa- just I just wanted the show to be that. Um, so with Nels today, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about Los Angeles. We talk about films. We talk about vintage guitars. We talk about a lot of stuff. Nels has got a lot going on right now. He just put out a record by his band, the Nels Klein Four, which is a group uh, of the highest caliber. It's he and Julian Lodge, who we're going to get in here at some point. I've been working on Julian, getting him in here. Uh, He and Julian on guitars. Tom Rainey on drums, Scott Colley on bass. Now, that's not a fucking band, and I don't know what is. The new record's out, out on Blue Note. Unbelievable. You know, Nels, if there's anyone out there who's a lifer, it's certainly Nels Klein. Uh, He just turned 62 recently. He's going harder, stronger, and better than ever. And this band is really exceptional. And they're going to be on tour, West Coast, you West Coast people, you know, uh, Nels is is is, uh, is a down-home Los Angeles boy. He lives in Brooklyn now, but uh, you West Coasters have a chance to see a really spectacular band. 
this February 7th through the 20th, they're going to be on the West Coast. Go to NellsKlein.com to, to find out more about the record and to look at those tour dates. I, I strongly suggest you get out there. Then in June, he's going to be out there with Wilco again. Have you heard of this band, Wilco? Nels plays guitar in it. Uh, pretty good band. I'll just say it again. Nels is one of my favorite dudes to talk to in this capacity. Easygoing, interested, hilarious, uh, unique perspective. Just, you know, he's open to the talk. The conversation goes where it goes because this is someone who doesn't show up with an agenda. My favorite kind of dudes. I've said it before. Um, in my, I think in my dream world, I would own a shop of some kind. Maybe we'll sell things. Maybe we'll fix things. Maybe it'll be a combination of these things. But in my shop, me and the dudes that work there and the dudes that come through spend a lot of time drinking coffee and talking shit. And I imagine that this, this conversation with Nels today uh, would probably fit in quite well at my shop. Go to NellsKlein.com. Seriously, check them out. And that's it. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. That really helps. And uh, once again, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, we made it. I wish the best for all of you. Uh, I, I, I think 2019 is going to be good. And you know, I hope all of you are, wherever you are right now listening to this, that, that you're happy or at least content that you're with people you care about. Um, and you're, you're taking the time to, to appreciate, you know, what, what, the, the year that, that, that just passed and uh, what will be coming in 2019. That's it. Here's my conversation with Nels Klein. I mean, you know, none, you know, none of us are, are made of money, but... You will notice if you go to a recording studio, the guys who are operating the, the Pro Tools, they're not also checking their email and doing like <laughs> Adobe and all the crazy shit we do. So like, I, you know, if you can have a production computer that that's all you do with it, mm -hmm. I think you're, that's already a step in the right direction. But you still have to upgrade Pro Tools frequently and My it Pro costs Tools, a lot of money. Do you use Pro Tools? No. You don't have any home recording set up? No. I rely on experts for many things. <laughs> But Yuka's got like a home recording thing, right? Uh, it she can record at home. It's not ideal, but right, yeah, right. Yeah, she, we're working on that. Trying to get her an actual uh, workspace because we can't make a lot of noise where we live now in Thin Brooklyn. Walls. Mm, it's a condominium situation in Brooklyn. Yeah, so you... we live in a friend, an apartment owned by a, one of Yuka's oldest friends. Okay. And so there are rules about things, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, so I, having a dedicated workspace in New York City is like the luxury of luxuries in my mind. She needs it. She needs it. I don't need it really because I have a cubby hole packed with guitars and records and stuff. But I don't plug in to practice. You don't. Nobody can hear me. No, never. Now you just uh, you play an electric guitar that's not amplified while you practice. Yeah, running scales or an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yeah, nobody about, cares like, about those sounds. What about all your effects and stuff? You just you save that for the the band room. Yeah, I mean, I just take him to the gig. <laughs> Seriously, sometimes I mean I have a ton of them now because yeah, I know. somebody just sent me 
a friend of mine in in Athens. I know two Athens. pedal makers in Athens, Greece. Okay, and uh, and I hadn't heard from this guy Christos in a while, and he said, "I see you're still using the Viagra Boost on your That's pedal board." Pedal. Yeah, and uh, it's a clean <laughs> so boost. Good. It's a good one. And he said, "We have a whole bunch of new stuff. Check out our, my website and see if there's anything you're interested in. I'll be happy to send it to you." So I said, "Well, there are a couple." A really interesting looking pedals there, uh-huh. and and then he sent me nine pedals. He just, I asked for two, and he sent nine. And, I mean, they're really. I haven't tried them all, but they're really good. But when I try them, I just like take take it to a recording session or a gig, and that's usually where <laughs> I find out how they work. I I've been doing a thing where I mean I will I think pedals are ultimately my greatest uh, like weak spot. Mm. Like I'm obsessed with pedals. Really, but I buy them and sell them all the time. Oh, okay. You know, if I if something is like I, I get really into these Earthquaker pedals. Oh yeah, but they, some of them they hooked me up this year too. I got like seven <sighs> pedals from them. Oh, if you look at but but this is how this man Christos saw that I still had the Viagra Boost. He, his company's called Crazy Tube Circuits, uh-huh. and uh, because I did uh, Earthquaker devices, uh, bored to death. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, watch some of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's where he saw it. So, and those people are super nice, and they make really interesting stuff. The Earthquaker people, yeah, yeah. But some of those pedals are like just too powerful for me. Mm, like, well, I mean, like I'm amplifying a clarinet with them, which is stupid to begin with. But I don't really. So you're talking about their distortion pedals? Like no, I, have, and I got stuff? this pedal called a um, Arpanoid Bit Commander. Oh, okay. I haven't tried that one. That's a little outside my my palate. Those right. some of this all this this uh like granular bit crushing, all yeah. this kind of world that's going on that it's I'm trying to sort of sidestep a lot of that because I'm more interested I guess in Still, kind of sounding like a guitar. Yeah, I that you want it to sound like a guitar, <laughs> sort of. Well, that's sort of been my criteria. Anything that completely masks the tone of the clarinet, like I don't. So it sort of like delays reverbs and then like glitch pedals. Mm-hmm. I've gotten really into glitch pedals, uh, where you can still hear the clarinet like exactly as it's meant to be heard. Have but you, have you tried the uh, Montreal Assembly Count to Five yet? No. <laughs> Do I need to? I think you should get one. You have to order them when the guy's taking orders, but. Uh, Montreal Assembly count to five. Scott Amendola gave me one for my when I turned sixty, which was now two years ago. Uh-huh. But, that was his uh, gift to you. He said, <laughs> um, and it's it's quite remarkable. It's a little unpredictable, which might be the understatement of the century. I'm not sure I have any kind of mastery of this thing, yeah. but it's it's endless fun and it does a lot of things. Is and it? It's, small. it's got crazy parameters, or is it All right? And I've, the idea of using any of these kind of things now, like the uh, Red Panda Particle, which Yuka loves, uh, or their new Tensor, using those with an expression pedal, forget it. I mean, I would get lost. I'd be lost in a netherworld of effects possibilities and never come back because it just right. becomes so vast and there are so many possibilities uh, and I don't even know if I could get back to them should I fall in love with one of these sounds, if I could control it enough or m- remember well enough to work my way back to find that sound on a gig, you know? Yeah. I wish I had the bread and, like, the the cachet to commission someone. to. I have two pedals in mind that I want to build. And I want, I, I just, I need to, you know, I anytime, I, used to, I got to a point where I was going to gigs carrying, like, a roller bag behind me. Which is absurd. I play an instrument that fits in a backpack. 
<laughs> so now if I can't, anything that won't fit in one backpack, it doesn't come. So it'll, you know. Well, it's small is good for sure. But so what do you, what are you thinking about? I might know the, the people I who build? could, yeah, I might know people who could so do something. This is like a, all over the years of using pedals with acoustic music, one thing that I cannot abandon, and it's sort of based on this concept of improvising, using the clarinet as a feedback device, and then amplifying the room. And what I did is I took a, a D112, you know, a kick drum mic that doesn't really have a lot of highs. Yeah, yeah, those gray things, those ball-like gray yeah, things. Yeah, it's up there somewhere. I put yeah. it through, it goes into a volume pedal, out of the volume pedal into a distortion pedal, into a board with a huge reverb and all the highs cut and all the lows, uh, lows boosted. Oh, interesting. So you just kind of start tapping. Sounds the, murky. Yeah, you just start started tapping the volume pedal, and it just this like menace, this menace. And then as you play the clarinet, it sort of you know constantly changes the frequency based on what you play. Mm. So be, I'd like to have all those things in one box, just one box as my feedback device. Hmm. Doesn't sound like it would be difficult to build something like that. It just interesting someone in the idea would be the hardest thing because it sounds like it's very limited appeal for anyone else yeah no it wouldn't be i mean it's, it's like your thing it's not music right <laughs> it's just it's straight up like how to make everyone mostly the sound guy feel really uncomfortable uh i know some people who could <laughs> you know maybe guy? get into this yeah yeah in new york yeah. no uh -uh. okay uh but yeah i'm gonna write down Send me an email okay. with exactly what you said, yeah, and I will forward it to two or three people. One of whom I think might be really interested. Yeah, I mean, because he doesn't even make commercial pedals. He just he builds uh, mostly modular synthesizer stuff, mm -hmm. but has also done clones of distortion pedals that mm -hmm. are very high quality. Uh, and you know, he doesn't put them in production to sell them. He just makes them for fun, really. Yeah. So we were talking for a second about vinyl out there, and you were about to lay something okay, on Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, here's my scree. Um, for one thing, you know that this vinyl fixation is still mostly an American fixation. Maybe it's a yeah. Canadian fixation and an Australian one, but for the most part, uh, I don't see the same uh, obsession with vinyl happening in Europe or you, Japan. You're saying that as a touring artist, Correct. the people that hit the merch table aren't as enthused about the vinyl. They don't expect it, really. Okay. And so, yes, you have a lot of people, for example, at vinyl bars in Japan, mm -hmm. where the stereo is incredible, all the vinyl is old and in perfect shape. Mm -hmm. It's not this kind of oh, it's a record, so it sounds good kind mm -hmm. of thing, which is, I think, what we're experiencing okay. now. So it's an American obsession. I think it is. Yeah. And I think it's a response to the lack of the object where music listening is concerned now, which is all downloads for most people, somebody wanting to hold something and look at something, right? which, of course, you and I love. Well, of course. Um, but also it's like... Uh, a kind of nostalgia for people who have no nostalgia for vinyl. They're ha they're experiencing a nostalgia they never experienced as nostalgia. I if really you know, thought about that. In other words, it's this kind of retro thing, and ever since certain kinds of DJs, it's it's a coolness thing. Uh huh. I'm good with all of that. I always feel like me when I put on a vinyl record because I grew up being obsessed with records and music. Right. Um, this said, 
as somebody who worked in a record store in the late seventies from you know from seventy six to eighty five basically. So you did watching, your time. yeah, and watching the transition into the compact disc uh, from the vinyl world, which was a, a strange time, particularly for independent record stores because. CDs at first were extremely expensive to buy, mm-hmm. and everyone wanted them. Um, now you can't even buy a CD player. Uh, you'd have to buy a used CD player. As far as I know, there you cannot go out and buy a new CD player Not just about end. anywhere. Right. Um, and my CD player has the the drawer won't go, won't open now. So that Miles Okazaki CD that you can I listen to like about forty times before we had to say that's all you got. You know, like like. We should get this fixed. Um, but you know that's and I can't even that's find old, that's retro to listen to a record forty times. Yeah, it is. But anyway, it's a great record. But anyway, uh, um, the vinyl thing now bothers me because, well, it, I should say it vexes me somewhat, and yeah. for mostly for two reasons. One, I don't like the idea that if it's on vinyl, it just is better. Because it's not. Because there's so many ways vinyl can go wrong. And most people now, younger people, I don't think they know necessarily all the different ways that vinyl can sound terrible. Which, and they don't care because they right. think that, like, for example, ticks and pops are cool. And I'm not into ticks and pops, especially uh, when people used to whine about compact discs. Uh, because vinyl bright, was so cool. Was a, yeah. uh, I would say, wow, I, I, I really don't miss ticks and pops on my, on my Eric Satie uh, solo piano music records, right. you know what I mean? I, I really don't miss having to turn over uh, the record to hear the rest of a symphony that lasts longer than 25 minutes. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, there are certain benefits. Also, I like knowing that everything's at the right speed, for example. Right. You know, uh, your turntable can be on the wrong speed without you knowing it. Uh, well, but anyway, now we're, uh, this is, I'm getting off, I'm getting off track, but I mean, all the different ways that vinyl can sound bad, obviously a shitty recording is going to sound like shit, period. Shitty mastering is going to make a record that might even have been a good recording sound like shit. Mm -hmm. And then if your turntable has a shit cartridge on it, (laughs) like a sure cartridge, some crap, you know, like medium to to low level quality cartridge in it, and it's not set up right it's going to sound like shit. Mm-hmm. So, and now what are most people listening to of new records that are released on vinyl? They're listening to digitally recorded music right. in uh on a on a an analog format, which can be fine. I mm-hmm. mean, certainly digital recording is getting better every second uh technically, technologically speaking, mm-hmm. you know. Um the sampling rates way up there is starting to sound really great to my ears. Uh but I think the thing that vexes me most about the vinyl trend, besides, uh, well, there are three things, besides what I've said. One, uh, I can't tour with it. it. It's there's no way. So cumbersome. You can't do it. I can't do it. I'm bringing, if I'm, I'm bringing a guitar, two guitars if I'm lucky. That's right. as fancy as I get, except with Wilco when we have a, a semi full of stuff. Right. You know, instruments and uh, merchandise all this stuff but certainly in the you know the real world of moving around one oneself yeah impossible 
you can't return it if it's defective. Right. Now you're just stuck with this piece of shit. If <laughs> if it is indeed a piece of shit, right? You know what? You have no recourse. You used right. to be able to return things. Like of course it drove us crazy at the record store after a while. And there'd always be the customers that came in with the slightest defect. They'd always bring the record back. But you had to give them another record, and we just sent that record. Back. Defective record back to the one stop, and the one stop sent it back to the label, and then they recycled the vinyl and made more records out of them. Right. Um, so you can't do that, and and then there's the planet killing, pollution aspect mm-hmm. of it, which is troubling. And I just want people to be in reality about the fact that a petrochemical product is nasty. So that's why David Breskin, my producer uh, and good friend. Uh, suggested buying carbon offset credits. And interestingly, there has has still been no study done uh, to find out what the carbon imprint of pressing vinyl is because the only study that was done was initiated in the compact disc era. So we had to extrapolate based on existing information since we couldn't initiate a, a whole new study and just kind of guess about vinyl and and we're also taking into account compact discs and then uh always on technology leaves an imprint as well and then there's transportation of the actual product on vehicles and airplanes Mm -hmm. so i just want people to be in in reality as they boost their coolness factor with their slab o vinyl Mm -hmm. uh about what that stuff is and of course, I love album covers. I love the size. Mm-hmm. I had to move my records from <laughs> Los Angeles to New York, along with all my art books and stuff. And uh-huh. there is a point at which one decides uh, to commit to something truly insane, like hanging on to 2,000 records. Well, but, I mean, at some point, do you stop and look at it? Like, do I need... I mean, I... I how how refined was your vinyl collection at that point? Had you gotten rid of the Tijuana brass and the yeah I the mean, gospel dollar bin records? I and I don't buy a lot of records. I, they tend to accumulate anyway in the course of right. a year. But but I don't think I buy more than thirty records a year. Right. But you know, still, I mean, like, I mean, vinyl records. I, I still know, buy CDs. Like I said, I just dumped half my CDs and all the stuff I dumped. Like you know, the criteria was. Was this something that someone just gave me on the road that like I've never listened to? Is this no, something that's what I call the guilt pile? The guilt pile, uh, which I <laughs> I have a cut. huge guilt pile. <laughs> it well, it reaccumulates every year. Every year. Um, but then it was like, oh, this Allison Chain CD. Like, I have a fucking you know streaming account. Like, I really don't need to hang on to this. So right. if it's some not something that like I really sought out, it's really important to me. Or most more specifically, if it's not available on streaming services, right. That's a good point. Well, I haven't gotten quite that refined with the compact disc boxes yet, but <laughs> but I did leave a ton of them. I got rid of a ton, and I did leave a ton in my storage space in Los Angeles, but there's still a lot that I thought I would like to have in New York, and I can't even deal with it. It's, so, it's ridiculous. I have no shelves for them. So. Well, it's insane. Like We live in the city where, I mean, as demonstrated by the room that we're sitting in, like space is at a fucking premium. True. My wife's on my case all the time about, about keeping this stuff. But here's the thing. Well, there's a few things I would say. Uh, number one, and then we'll talk about some music. Um, in addition to everything you said about vinyl, which I agree with, if you're a self-producing uh, artist, you know, if you're doing all your own mail order, you know how much it costs to send a piece of vinyl to Europe? Like over $20. Yeah, well, you know how much it costs to actually have vinyl made? Right. 
it's really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you were to follow any traditional um, retail model of how you mark things up, to send a piece of vinyl to Europe yep. realistically costs like fifty to sixty dollars, which is absurd. Yeah. Secondly. Most of these people that are like fetishizing vinyl, and I'm not talking about the big dogs, you know, if I'm talking about like Brooklyn artists, you know, who have like two grand to make a record. Yeah. Like the input needs to match the output. If you're recording at home with like some 57s into like a digital box, putting that on vinyl arguably is, you know, not the smartest thing you could do. Well, I think that. I'm seeing another interesting wrinkle, uh, and I think maybe the perfect format for what you're describing, Yeah, the resurgence of the cassette. I hate it. <laughs> Are you down with it? I don't even have a working cassette player. I... However, I do think that the, the kind of music and recording that you're talking about could benefit right. from a nice slow tape speed. Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of round out the, right. the funk or whatever. They can sound really good. So the other side of this, though, is that, and I, I keep asking myself, like, I don't really get turned on by streaming. I have a stream, like I said, I have a streaming account, Apple Music, and it's great in that, you know, I'll say to myself, you know, I've never really spent that much time with Booker Little. Let me listen to some Booker Little, you know, for instance. You know, there it is. And it's great in that if you have a musical idea, if you record your idea, you can feasibly have it available for everyone in the world to listen in a matter of minutes. True. Like we should be excited about that. I know it is. I mean, it is kind of exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I also am interested in this. Is maybe getting off topic, but I'm interested in, uh, at least my impression of what I thought initially would be with three thousand releases a day uh, of any kind of music, reissues, new uh -huh. music, whatever. There's so much coming out all the time. It's. Uh, overwhelming you could look at it as a glut but i see a lot of really quality stuff being noticed by younger listeners they're finding what i always thought was cool stuff that would get completely buried in the right glut. uh and people are embracing recordings and music by artists that i didn't think would be even noticed yet alone celebrated like what's so, an example of that, that you can think well of? i mean uh, let's see What's an example? Um, I mean, I've noticed this, for example, uh, with w when I joined Wilco, uh -huh. uh, I had no idea that these guys would be really into this band Pato. And Pato okay. in the 70s were completely unnoticed by Americans. And my brother Alex and I had a, a good friend in high school named Lee who loved Pato, among other uh, many other British bands. And in fact, I could mention all these bands now that I thought would be completely overlooked by this time, which Just would be like Hatfield in the right. North or Matching Mole or uh, Caravan or these kind of bands that Lee liked uh -huh. and that some of which were really quite quite amazing. And uh, and here I was joining this you know rock band that some people thought of as kind of having this Americana component, which isn't really exactly accurate, but mm -hmm. uh, and being really into Pato. And in fact, so much so that we, one of the first couple of years I was in the band, would walk on stage to a Pato song. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I saw the man. Yeah, and which is an incredible song and very long, and has one of the Pato had one of the 
best guitar players in rock ever named Ollie Halsell, who died young, but okay. uh, left-handed wonder, played a lot like uh, Alan Holdsworth, early Holdsworth, okay. very like, you know, like uh, pull-off technique, incredible uh, articulation and a lot of freedom in his playing too, right. but he still rocked. And he played vibraphone also in the band. But... Um, so the fact that there are a lot of people now saying like, yeah, Pato, you know, I think that's like, really, really great. <laughs> yeah. And also, and I can't think of one now, my mind goes blank, but even when I am asked, well, what are you listening to now? But, but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, reissues of records that I never, ever saw on, that were apparently on some tiny, tiny labels and small pressings of mostly sort of late 60s psychedelic hippie soul all this kind of stuff that working in a record store where i handled used records and took trade-ins of used records for almost 10 years uh i never saw these records they they were super obscure and some of them are really really amazing mm -hmm. and so that's a uh something that I find really interesting is that it's not just, oh, this is obscure and weird, so now it's just part of the glut. It's also obscure and weird, possibly part of the glut, but also pretty good music that got totally overlooked that mm -hmm. now is available. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm fascinated by the fact that it's not just sound, it's it's some pretty high-quality sound. Well, and but something that in my opinion, the whole digital world really needs to sort itself out with. And people give people make fun of me when I say what I'm about to say, which is like I, I buy DVDs literally every week. I watch several movies a week, and the truth of the matter is there's no better way to watch movies. I don't like going to movie theaters. I hate it. I like watching movies at home. Mm. And there's no better way to do it than a DVD the, or a Blu-ray, which I also buy. The, the image is perfect. You know, if you've got your home stereo set up, it sounds great. But everything is available on DVD, almost none of the great shit's available for streaming. So I have accounts with Netflix and all that stuff. Netflix is ninety eight percent dog shit. I mean, if you want to watch like you know, no, I know seasons one through five of like Real Housewives or <laughs> you know whatever stupid Stranger Things or whatever right. it is, yeah, it's great for that. But if you want to watch, and I'm not even talking about like super obscure Criterion stuff. I'm talking about like if you want to watch Citizen Kane, you know, argued by some would say it's the greatest movie ever made. It's not there. So people are like, you have a DVD player? What are you, 100 years old? And it's just like, no, I just... We, it, we watch DVDs. Uh, I, I want to access the good shit, so I'm responding to the format that has it. And all that is to say, whether it's iTunes or, or Netflix, like they need to get their shit together in terms of quality control. Because right now, it's like going to TJ Maxx or something. Well, it's also wrong-headed quality control because well, we've discovered we screen movies on a white wall in our place because we have a big white wall. And one of the first things that Yuka did when we moved to Brooklyn into this place was get a really high-res uh, projector. Yeah. And so, you know, we can watch stuff off the laptop, but uh, if we want to rent something... That's maybe a, a, a blockbuster type movie, okay. like a big right, right, budget, right. the Avengers, whatever or something. Yeah. They you pay for it to rent it for that night because we don't want to own it. No. And then, I think even if we buy it, sometimes they can tell that we're actually projecting it 
What? And you can't project it because they think you're going to be charging money to screen it somewhere. That's such old school thinking. <laughs> so, but but then how do you? I mean, how do you get a refund? I mean, it, it's really maddening. So there are a lot of movies that we can't actually screen, so unless we buy the DVD. Well, you, this is a few years ago. Uh, did you hear about this controversy with Bruce Willis? He was um, like updating his will. No. And one of his kids, you know, I guess he has, you know, in addition to like an amazing record collection, he has like thousands and thousands of albums that he purchased on iTunes, like, you know, a very deep blues collection. Mm-hmm. He's doing his will and he leaves his iTunes collection to like one of his kids. The lawyer comes back and says, guess what? Like, you can't technically do that. You know, you don't own that. You're leasing it from iTunes. And when you die, that's not yours anymore. And it kind of created this whole, you know, question of, yeah. intangibility right but <laughs> it, it just it's shocking to me that I, I i get that it's great to not have stuff i get that it's great to have instant access to things to not have to wait a few minutes while you load like a little thing into a thing but i'm too old to even have thought about that as being a, a hassle <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not very creative in my thoughts. It's super frustrating to me. I have this friend who is an amazing chef. I mean, top top shelf. You know, last year he was named GQ Chef of the Year. He's this amazing creative guy. Mm. And, like, I eat his food, and, like, I experience his work that way, you know? And I went, I was like, dude, I want to lay some CDs on you. And he just laughed at me. He's like, I'm not, how am I going to listen to those fucking things? Yeah, this is like going on tour, and uh, if you're me... I don't do this anymore because I've learned my lesson and bringing CDs that I think would be great to play before we. Oh play. yeah. Can you give it to the sound guy and say, hit they play don't have CD players three. back there. <laughs> they just say like, is it on Spotify? No, that's it. It's, it's all they have is Spotify. Oh. So, so I always say the same thing to Narwin, please play to Narwin and I'll be fine. <laughs> and that's it. They're on Spotify. Thank God. <laughs> so, yeah, Spotify's the fucking worst. There was I remember the last time we talked, we um we we were talking about Los Angeles and specifically the film Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And you said that was the best LA movie of all time. Or your it's favorite. It's up there. It's up there. LA Confidential's pretty great, even though it's the sanitized version of the book. You put that in the top LA films? It's a good one. Yeah. I need to check back in with it. Also, uh Devil in the Blue Dress, Denzel. Yeah. Uh, based on the Walter Mosley book. It's actually because there was the Easy Rollins uh-huh. uh, series of, of sort of noir novels that Walter Mosley wrote. He's from Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and that's the first book of that series. And I think the movie, in a way, is better than the book. The books get better as they go along, in uh-huh. my opinion. But but uh, that's a good one. That's a, that's a good Los Angeles film. I've, since we last talked, become, I was just in L.A. like a week ago. I've I've appreciated it even much more in the last few years and become really, really fascinated with sort of the, the spirit of L.A. and like the smell of L.A. and <laughs> just like many different aspects of it. Um, mm. Well, it's apparently since I, uh, you and I last chatted in this cubbyhole, it's cool now. Whereas right. it used to be, uh, I had to defend it everywhere I went. Right. You know? Right. Which is, you know, of course, making it less cool. <laughs> as, as it tends to go I mean all, well, okay, just real quick the other thing is when we last talked I think I was way too optimistic about uh, the future of New York City <laughs> oh were you optimistic <laughs> yeah I was like oh man they're not gonna take us down like we're still cool you know oh but 
So I was listening to your record, Lovers, the okay. the, the, the twenty three piece group. Mm. And the first the first track I was listening, I said, "This sounds like a Los Angeles record." Interesting. It had like to me, I, I felt like that same kind of the way that when you put the first track from Jerry Goldsmith's Chinatown on, mm -mm. that same kind of easy, like sentimental, slightly uneasy noir sound, and I it felt. The way I enjoy watching, I mean, I love P.T. Anderson's movies, especially when they're in L.A. And the way I feel experiencing L.A. through his films, I kind of felt like I was experiencing L.A. through the music that way. Interesting. Well, I, I know that, that uh, Michael Leonard, who uh, did the arrangements on the Lovers record, and, and uh, in, in many cases, I just let him do whatever he wanted. And, and in other cases, I had some ideas you know yeah. that he executed perfectly he's aware of that music you're talking about even though he's born and raised in manhattan uh-huh uh, that era of movie soundtrack is something you can't really get around if you're making a, a recording that we were trying to make of right. that's moody or romantic or uh ever so slightly tense yet mm -hmm. you know sort of smooth mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um uh, but I never really thought about that record in terms of a of a place so much. So I'm interested in your uh, reaction or your. I mean, your... I, I guess I still need to sort of um, like. There's an example right there: the Long Goodbye, the Altman film. Mm -hmm. Like the way they use that piece in that film really sort of like underlines the the loneliness of the character and mm -hmm. largely. I mean, the Los Angeles. I feel it like can be pretty lonely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, not not for me, but I know many people who have had brutally lonely Los Angeles existences, people who couldn't meet people because of the vastness and the, the isolation factor. Uh, it's one of the things that I never really loved about Los Angeles and certainly don't miss is the lack of proximity to other humans. Yeah. So most people are in their cars, uh, and they just go to and from work and they find it hard to meet people. And yeah. in my case, it was exactly the opposite because I'm, I was a native. Yeah. And you, and you grow up with people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I grew up with natives. Many people I know never met a Los Angeles native till they met me as an adult. You really? Know, like, whoa, I've never met anyone who's from here. Everyone I know right. has, has moved here for whatever reason. To be famous. Yeah, or something. Yeah. And uh, since the aerospace industry is gone, and yeah, I guess it's pretty much Hollywood now. But, uh, well, no, there's a lot more going on, obviously. But, but uh, yeah, after working in a record store, playing in bands, then bookstore, doing all these things, I ran into people I knew everywhere I went in Los Angeles, which is really bizarre right. uh, to a lot of people. I think... Like a lot, I've I've been trying to put my finger on what it is about Los Angeles that's become alluring to me. Mm. You know, I went there fifteen twenty times and hated it before I began to learn how to like it. And then once well, I, you have to spend some time and you have to hang out with somebody who knows the city. Well, and you just also, but now to me the city is like it's like a like a just a treasure tro to me. Like I, you know, in New York, I you know I love this city. I've been coming into the city since I was a little kid, and you know I can walk on blocks all over the city and point out things about this block about this neighborhood that you know is not right in your face but you know this happened here so and so lived here and i'm beginning to be able to do that in los angeles mm. and i feel sentimental in los angeles interesting you know it's not i don't i mean i don't have any personal connection to the city whatsoever 
Um, but even if I'm just like driving on um, on the five and like the the highway is kind of like cracked and like sun scorched, I'm like, ah, oh, someone needs to take care of this. You know, it's like it's like an aging beauty. <laughs> Fascinating. Or at the Cahuanga passes like that, you know, where mm. you can see where like the train track is like covered oh, yeah. over. Right. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of memories of where I grew up, which is kind of not the cool part of Los Angeles at where this was point. It? West Los Angeles. It's yeah. kind of right near where the 405 and the uh, 10 freeways cross. Uh -huh. I literally grew up there. They built the 10 freeway when I, when my brother and I were growing up. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the last developed areas when i was a little kid there was a bean field at the end of our street i mean it's fascinating to me that between santa monica and beverly hills there was really almost nothing mm -hmm. until the 50s and uh now driving down la cienega let's say in west hollywood as i was recently and remembering like oh yeah there used to be an amusement park you know there mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. or or where the uh one of the first malls big malls indoor malls the west side pavilion um pico and westwood boulevard right that used to be an amusement park and, and you went to that amusement yeah park when we were kids so i crossed from the apple pan it's like the apple pan's the only thing from my childhood that's still <laughs> there pretty much except for the houses you right. know like the the neighborhood i grew up in looks pretty much the same as it always did yeah but the business streets look completely different yeah they're really because it was like a little like it was like a small town on barrington avenue when i was a kid with these fun this funny beer bar the gateway beer bar uh-huh with all these ridiculous signs they had uh -huh. outside that they thought were so funny and like they're gorgeous Here, here's the door we're ready to pour they changed them all the time <laughs> christmas in july you know all this kind of stuff and then this barber shop and it, yeah. was, all, it was really not not cool but then i started living on the east side because it's just has so much more flavor or whatever and even though it's way hotter you mean like echo park and yeah, yeah. i started well i started living in cypress park uh-huh uh and uh eagle rock right Glen, which is now glendale like, and what and now then, eagle rock and highland park are like you got to be someone to live there yeah highland park's kind of like a a sad <laughs> real estate boondoggle it's a very new york kind of story but i feel like one thing that I guess like I've been thinking about a lot this a lot about this with New York is I think what's eating at me is like there's this apps they're 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 getting rid of continuity you know and what I mean is like when I first moved here you know I moved I've spent my entire adult life at this point living in the Lower East Side and that meant you know like I for whatever reason I have like an appreciation and an understanding and years of experience with Dominican food because that was that's what was in the neighborhood. Right. You know, I started drinking Cafe Bustelo when I was 21. And, you know, now it's like, and that there's a confluence <laughs> there, you know, or you uh -huh. see like the Hebrew signs, you know, that are like faded. But, you know, they're still like on Avenue A, Ben Ari, um, Jewish, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Jewish articles. So you can go buy like a mezuzah and like a Star of David necklace. And like, so having all these things side by side is what makes something what it is to me. Mm -hmm. So now that they're smashing, you know, grazing things over and building these high rises for, right. you know, Saudi princes, not even for like rich New Yorkers. Right. In LA, like especially where I end up staying, like out in the valley, there's all these places like Tommy's Burgers. It looks like it was built in the 40s. Seemingly still in business. I don't know how many burgers a day Tommy's selling, but... 
Well, Tommy's, if it's if it's the Tommy's, there's more than one, and it's legendary. Is it good? Uh, I don't eat burgers, so I don't know. <laughs> there's a Tommy's in Eagle Rock. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. But it's next door to where I would go, Which Pete's is- Blue Chip. Pete's Blue Chip was there when I went to college at Occidental College in the mid-'70s. It's still there. There's still quite a few places. Trich Hardware, for right. example, across the street from Pete's Blue Chip is exactly as it was probably in the 1950s. Yeah. The Eagle Rock was like the land that time forgot when uh, my friend Carla Boslich bought her house there, and everyone thought she was crazy in the, in the mid-'90s yeah. to, to want to and buy a house there. Joke's on them. Well, joke's on them but she lost the house to oh. to the bank because she was broke and right. whatever but that's a whole other story but <laughs> but at that time you could not buy an espresso beverage in eagle rock right in the 90s right you had to go to glendale or somewhere pasadena uh-huh to get an espresso beverage but don't you think like have you played at the village vanguard yes and when you played there or when you go there as a listener do you feel like you're existing under the auspices of something. Like, the, is that is that is that historical connection important to you? I don't know if it's important to me, but it's palpable when it's there. It's palpable. Yeah. 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 I mean, because uh, I played there a couple of times, both times with Jenny Scheinman's Mischief and Mayhem. Okay. And um, it looks exactly the same as when my brother Alex and I visited New York in 1976. Yeah. And uh, which was our third time visiting New York. We were here in the 67 and 68 with our family, but we made a jazz pilgrimage in 76. Right, right, right. right. And, uh, and went to go hear whoever was playing at the Vanguard because we had to go to the Village to the Vanguard, Vanguard, which right. a lot of people obviously still do. Yeah. And, and it turned out to be Dave Liebman and Lookout Farm. So it was a pretty badass gig. Um, and it looks exactly the same inside as it Smells did then. The same. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is something really marvelous about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why it's a, a mecca for a lot of people who are obsessed with, say, jazz. Right. And they come to New York because they like jazz and because New York's the most photographed city in the world. And they just want to actually, I guess, stand in places that they've seen in a 3,000 movies and photo shoots. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they get to actually walk down those stairs and imagine how many other it's like they're walking, people have walked like down those stairs. Tunnel, yeah. ex- ex- like a time tunnel. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but, but playing in places like that is never a big goal for me. I right. just wanted to play wherever, you know? And right. No, I know it's not. I mean, I try to, I, I remember having this moment, and this is so stupid, but uh, I had a, a really great gig. Like everything, it was just one of those nights where, like, man, they don't happen like that all the time. And I was on the, in the cab on the way home, thinking, like, what I just experienced on stage, like, and this is to say nothing of the actual sonorities coming out of our instruments, but that's the same thing that people have been experiencing for forever. You know, when Prince is having a good night, when you know Jimmy Jufri's having a good night, that's you know we're tapped into that same sense of 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 righteousness in our being. Mm. And so, like, along those lines, I began to, I, I think I've always enjoyed stepping into other people's experience. Like, I went to this bar in Los Feliz a couple of weeks ago uh, called The Drawing Room. Oh, yeah. Do you know that place? Uh, I've been in it, but I've, it's not been a hang or anything. I felt like I was like, I was like, oh, this, I understand Charles Bukowski better now. 
that I went there at one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh. You know, it, there's all the lights are turned off except for the little red Christmas light over the bar, and it was just actual drunks and me, an actual drunk. But you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, yeah, I, I, there I, aren't too many places like that left, right? You know, I the mean, rustic he, inn is right across the street. I'm trying to think, like, uh, I'm, you know, where where I'm living now is uh, Prospect Heights, and mm-hmm. the building that that we're living in was, I'm sure, the harbinger of change in our neighborhood because it was a newspaper office that was turned into condominiums right. about 16 or 17 years ago, before the Barclays Center was built, which is right a block away. Okay. So, um, and the places that everybody loved around there, most of them have were either, you know, there's some bar that everyone loved called Frank's. That's I know Frank's. Yeah, well, it's in the Barclay Center. This, yeah, you know, ate it up, and now Hank's Saloon is going to disappear. It's going to go away. Right. It's going to like this is the last month I think for Hank's Saloon, and uh, so that leaves the Alibi on DeKalb, which uh-huh. uh, Donald McKenzie turned me on to, which is, they still have $3 beers. And, um, and he knew everyone in there. You know, it's one yeah. of those kind of places. Uh, it's just harder and harder to find places like that. And at the same time, you have to imagine that people are going to want to go to places like that. If they, if they don't get priced out, if they don't own, they're going to get priced out. They're going to have to move because the rent's going to triple. Right, or it's happening everywhere. But... If they were smart and they own, they can do that forever because there's a demand. People are always going to go to places like that. That's the interesting thing. To me, it seems viable to have $3 beers when everybody else is selling $8 beers yeah. and have a neighborhood place where everybody in the neighborhood's going to want to go at some point and feel like it's they're welcome there. Mm-hmm. It makes sense just as a business model, you know? It's it's uh, it's a shame that... that uh, there's no real way to fight big money real estate, you know, no, because not. You, because you can't appeal to their whatever sense of community they, they, or only morality thing, or something. There's only one thing they're concerned with. But like even with guitars, you know, like I wait, <laughs> wait what? Well, no, what I was just gonna say is that like I I I've come to I guess I've always valued it, but now like I'm conscientiously like pragmatic about it is i don't want to go anywhere that isn't a real place that doesn't have a real vibe like i don't want to eat at shake shack i want to eat at the corner bistro you know oh yeah that's why that's why i took arecibo here and not (laughs) right and it's our local cards place (laughs) right but like and and, you know it's the all these things are so unusual and sort of like just they're unique to what they are you know whether it's going to the village vanguard or going to Russ and Daughters or playing like, you know, you know, Doug Weaselman plays these fucking weird clarinets from the 30s, these Colert clarinets that like literally they, I can hear Doug instantly just on the tone of his horn. Mm. And I mean, do you find with guitars that when you're, when you're fi- coming across these old instruments, oh. is there a peculiarity that you're looking to honor? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, that's, we're going to get into a whole quagmire if we start talking really? about that well yeah because you know what before i joined wilco i might have had maybe i don't know how many guitars like 10 okay maybe 12 guitars right which means electric guitars acoustic guitars 12 string electric 12 right. string acoustic nylon string basically a variety of useful instruments sure 
then I fell into a fetishistic world of guitar lust and love. Once you joined uh, Loco and yeah, yeah, and and I got bitten by this hideous bug, uh, and I realized that I could acquire guitars and probably use them with Wilco and leave them in the Wilco loft, which mm -hmm. has a lot of room for guitars mm -hmm. or used to. Now that there's so many guitars there now, it's, <laughs> it's really unbelievable. Although I can't uh, take the blame for that, really. It's like Jeff's an amazing guitar collector, but, and not, right. I, don't, I don't mean collector like everything's a $10,000 something or other oh, I'm mean, sure there's like, some hondos in there yeah yeah <laughs> but I found myself acquiring just kind of mostly wacky 60s guitars uh unusual lap steels like things that weren't expensive right but that had a lot of personality and then justifying it by saying like listen to these tones like these they don't make guitars with these kind of needly 60s tones anymore yeah. and then realizing that i have something like 15 guitars that all have pretty much the same needly <laughs> 60s tone but that all look really cool yeah and didn't cost that much money so it's it's a kind of gross excess because i'm really embarrassed by it now because i have a lot of guitars that aren't obviously not getting played mm -hmm. because uh they were probably purchased on to while on tour, which was fun to do for not that to do much on money. A day off and, yeah. You know, go out and look at little amps and wacky guitars, and uh, and then with the idea that I was going to do some kind of painstaking yet enjoyable uh, search during a recording process right. for an unusual, just, right just this amazing tone or this strangeness or uh -huh. something. And there's, and I find myself going to whatever I normally use and using the pedals that I normally use That's... and getting plenty of results just from that stuff. So, so now I have all these guitars. I have a lot in New York and they're, uh, thankfully because of how our place is designed, they're not even in anybody's way except right. mine. They're, and these are like your main tools, your main axes. These, I mean, I have main axes and I have a bunch of other ones, you know. In New York. Yeah. Right. And uh, But if you're making a Wilco record. But where, I'm, I'm, okay. So what I was going to say is some of these have, let's say, old gold foil pickups on them, like uh -huh. on K's and, and uh, harmonies and think, guitars like that. Beautiful cheap, guitars. Cheap guitars of the day. Uh, a lot of that Valco stuff. Nothing sounds like those. So, yes, Sometimes that thing that you're describing is only achievable with some cool old instrument, and it could also be a feel thing. Although I'm not very, you know, neck profile sensitive or whatever, but sometimes you pick up an instrument that has some kind of insane history, and you can feel it right away, mm -hmm. and that will definitely inform one's consciousness while one is attempting to play the instrument. It's there's it's telling you this kind of mysterious story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that can be, you know, very compelling uh, and not achievable on a brand new instrument. Right. But even like, like, I guess one question I have is if you're making a record with Wilco, which, you know, is going to be, um, you know, in a lot of ways, like more high stakes than like a duo improv record. You know, this is a record that's going to be heard by a lot of people. And but you also have this ability song to song to contribute something to the sonic character to uh, in especially there's you know a narrative to the song do you take that opportunity take that advantage of being like for this song 
on this section. I'm grabbing this thing that looks like a toaster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that's part of the luxury yeah. of having time, you know, and we record in our own loft, and it's it's all very, very relaxed. There's nothing even soundproofed in there. Right. So, uh, but that said, you know, I'm sort of telling this story on myself again. I will sometimes overthink a situation and think like this is the perfect opportunity for that <laughs> Russian six pickup monstrosity I never should have bought and I plug it in expecting some kind of you know uh, lightning to strike and I'm going to come up with the, the coolest weirdest sound ever and uh-huh. it just doesn't happen it just doesn't happen <laughs> I have this uh, actually one of my v- valuable guitars is a beautiful uh, Gretsch Tennessean that I bought from my good friend G.E. Stinson uh-huh and it's uh, from 1960. It's an unbelievably perfect shape. It's a beautiful guitar, and uh, and I should never own guitars in perfect shape, by the way, because you I, just give I'm, them hell. I'm, I'm terrible. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm very destructive That's at times. Okay. But but I've never been able to use this guitar on a Wilco record. I've tried because it's there and it's beautiful and it's a Gretsch and it should work. It should sound. But what I don't know. It's just never quite made the cut. And and there it is sitting in sitting there, it taunting looks good in the me. <laughs> Every time I go to Chicago, photo shoot with I see that beautiful gray case, the original case. Yeah, sitting there on the shelf, and I just think, oh god. But what I is feel it so like? Guilty. So if you're playing, let's say you're doing a gig with your quartet, the um, Nels Climb Four, which is you know you're playing Julian Lage. Mm. Uh, I, I I'm gonna go ahead and assume that that playing situation really demands the best of your improvisational abilities. Truly. Um, like, if you're going into a situation like that, are you like, is the thinking like, yeah, that Russian guitar is cool, but I need something that's going to be a solid, reliable, responsive instrument. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone through, this is very geeky, people, that's, I'm sorry. Uh, I've gone through serious head trips about guitar choice for this particular project and yeah. I'm still going through a head trip about the trio that I'm doing here now uh, whenever possible with Tom Rainey and Chris Lightcap and the reason being that the project sort of started as one thing in my head uh, aesthetically or in terms of musical direction and sound and then uh, ended up going back to where I I feel things work, which is to say from a, a hollow body or more jazz friendly, quote unquote. Right. And not hum uh, <laughs> creating guitar to realizing that I just got to play a jazz master and that's the end of it, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it's what I seem to feel most comfortable on and sounds absolutely fine to my ears it was actually jeff tweedy one time sitting around the wilco loft my 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 bunk bed and desk is right next to his desk and very unusual for him to actually be at his desk because he spends most of his time in the little control room area with on a couch but uh he turned to me and out of nowhere he said nels if if you had to you really could just play a jazz master all the time right and i said yeah. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. <laughs> there are all these guitars everywhere. Right. Uh, and the only thing about the Jazzmaster that's a drag for other people, not so much for me, unless the electricity in a in a studio or a 
venues really, really gnarly. Mm-hmm. It's just the hum. Yeah. And I find that, that uh, kind of to my surprise, a whole lot of New York avant-garde improvisers really don't like 60-cycle hum. So I have guitars uh, that I bring for those people that that, th- that don't hum. That is not going to be there. And it won't have necessarily my ideal tone because humbuckers, humbuckers don't sound like single-coil pickups. Right. They just don't. Um, and I use the volume pedal a lot to uh, make hum not noticeable when recording and playing live. You, you just won't hear it as much. But if there's something really, really quiet and you hear that, you know, it's people really go disturbing. nuts. Yeah. I don't, I just live with it. I mean, come on. Yeah, I Look mean, <laughs> Charlie Christian at home, you know, those blade pickup on his guitar, that was one of the noisiest pickups ever made, and they sound incredible. Yeah, I had to accept myself <laughs> with, with the clarinet that, like, I don't have any business playing some old vintage clarinet, and I don't have any time or patience for it either. I need a horn that's well-built, brand new, and I will know if something mechanically ain't working right that it's not me and it's the horn, you know? Mm. Like, well, certainly old things can be extremely fussy and they don't like to travel as much either because no. they're, they become more and more delicate over time. Certainly this is true of guitar amps, for example. Right. But do you ever, like, I feel like with guitar amps specifically, I see that same thing in a lot of old amps that I see in LA, which is like, if you see like an old Fender, I don't even know what the models are called. You see these, like these kind of like beige amps oh, yeah. that are like, you know, kind of beat up and. You know, they sound like a million bucks. I see the same thing as when I see like Tommy's Burger, which is like, oh, look at that dream that was <laughs> that dream for the future that was, you know, put into reality 60 years ago. And that's what I feel about vintage cars. But would you ever want to drive one? Uh, Probably in another life, but I'd have to know how to fix them. I refuse to drive a car like that without knowing how to work on it myself. And I, I, feel like this is one of the few areas where I'm very dude-like. Yeah. Uh, is that I have this love of vintage automobiles. And it's right up there. They're right up there with steam trains and oh, all these kind of dude things that, that Every time I, I find see, so transporting. Whenever I see some dude driving a beautiful vintage car, I always wave to him. Yeah. And they always wave back. It's pretty uh, exhilarating if, you, if you're into that sort of thing. But a lot mm-hmm. of people I know are really surprised that I'm into this. I'm not or surprised it, by it at all. So, like... Uh, uh, the, the Wilco guys, we were in um, Bend, Oregon, and and I have this acquaintance named Dennis who texted me and said, hey, I'm coming to your show, but I thought you should know that there's uh, a vintage car, vintage and custom car show for free in the park. And so I got the runner to take me to this uh, car show, uh-huh. and it was so amazing it was so amazing but all the guys in the, the band when I came back I was you know completely freaking out it's like you wouldn't believe this look at these photos in my phone you know it's like right. look, at, look at this uh, Chrysler or whatever and uh, or look at this 57 Chevy Nomad look at that paint on that look at that you know, like what really you like do you have old you, cars and you know what's under the hood like you have that no I'm not, not really you know if somebody tells me you know oh yeah there's a three 357 whatever I, I know that's a big ass engine uh-huh. and, it, and that it's screaming for lead gasoline that it can't have and that uh, I mean, those uh, cars are really impractical yeah yeah but I mean you look cool but in another life I would 
be a tinkerer maybe in the garage and have uh, like a, a family and eat hamburgers and and uh, maybe be a plumber or something, do something practical and have enough money to, you know, take care of everybody and still uh, meet my friends on Saturdays in the parking lot with in, in my vintage car. That, and, there ain't nothing wrong with that. I'm you know. deeply envious of that, actually. <laughs> I, for me, I've used this, this comparison before. Like, for me, that's kind of like what a lot of making records is. You know, a lot of dudes, they'll come home from work. They don't want to talk to anyone, crack open a beer, go into the garage, and tinker on their, their muscle carts. I, I come in here, I open up this pro, the session file, and I work on the mixes, and, you know. Yeah. It's not t entirely different. Well, it's definitely a tinkerer thing, and it's it's a, kind of a solitary endeavor, certainly. Uh, I remember right. growing up walking our dog, and there's always, uh, on every block, for, for the most part maybe, almost every block, let's say, a garage door open every night with the dude in there, ham radio, yep. televisions, yep. vintage car, not vintage car, some kind of tinkering going on. And... And uh, I hope that this guy's wife and family were not feeling completely abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do feel like, uh, I guess, yeah, a, a tinge of, of envy that people have that focus and ability and that there's a result that comes from it that's pleasurable. Like, like you're talking about walking into this bar in Los Angeles, or you're talking about looking at a building and the same feeling you get when you slide into a, a bench, mm -hmm. not a bucket seat, let's say, mm -hmm. because there aren't too many of those left, a, a bench and get behind the dashboard of some wonder car that gets from five 1955 miles the <laughs> or 48 or whatever right. that weighs a million pounds because no it's heat. all steel, you know, yeah. and it has a radio in it that works, you know, <sighs> and you go like... Man, this, and I, I don't know. And I guess it's kind of idiotic to, uh, to dwell on anything that's nostalgic in that way because it, it but it's, it's harmless. It's generally harmless. It's not, and I don't think about it every yeah. day or anything, but, but, sure. but if I'm, especially, uh, my quartet's going to do a little run in the West in uh -huh. February and we'll see vintage cars on the road because the weather basically permits right. the existence of a car without rust um and i i'll be rather thrilled <laughs> i i don't think i mean i i i understand and certainly relate to like a certain allergy to nostalgia mm. you know mm. but like you know this idiot that's in office like that's you know there mm. there's the perfect example of why you should be distrustful and this whole make america great again bullshit is like that's one thing but you know, anytime, you know, I went to fucking Paris for the first time in my life a month ago, two months ago. Oh. And <clears throat> every step of the way, you know, I went to an organ recital at, at Notre Dame. I went to, you know, Shakespeare and Company and sat out drinking coffee with all the books that I just bought. Mm. And just being there is for me, like, like, like locking in, engaging, knowing that, you know, this thing that I'm loving at the moment is the same exact thing that people have been loving for however long before I came along. Yeah, that Going is to Big is Sur a, is like that for me. Oh yeah, yeah. Love Big Sur. It's a big one for me. Yeah, a uh, lot of connections from childhood, of uh, family trips and all that too for me. Big Sur, but also went to Paris in '68 with my family, uh, right before the riots, two weeks before the riots. Really, it was yeah, it was interesting. 
a whole, well, that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, but that's also feeling like a, a part of continuation. Yeah. So that's so it's not really a wistful nostalgia for something that you either experienced or wished that you could experience. It's right. actually you, you are experiencing. You're yeah. actually part of that stream when you're there, and you're conscious of it. The fact you're conscious of it makes it way more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think. You know, uh, totally. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any nostalgia rush walking into the Colosseum <laughs> in Rome. <laughs> you know, but going into City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco oh. definitely gives me a rush. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that gets my blood flowing. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's to each his own, I guess. It's like I, I don't, uh, I don't have any memories of past lives. So it's not like I walk into the Colosseum and remember when that lion, you know, attacked me and ate me and everyone cheered. <laughs> <laughs> but but thinking about all the poetry that was, uh, you know, yeah, exchanged, discussed, uh, sold, written about, spoken in certain places that. That gets to me. I mean, that, am I, I think, maybe I'm misremembering this, but the duo record that you made with Julian Lodge, mm. you did that at Sear Sound, right? We did. And being in a place like that, I mean, that that seems appropriate for this conversation. Sears serious, man. It's a beautiful thing. It's like, yeah. uh, it's, uh, I've done some other things there as well. So um, there's always that kind of little t- I don't know, tingle that you get realizing what has gone on in places like Sears Sound. And it's probably, I don't know, I haven't checked in uh, lately, but, you know, it seemed kind of endangered at one point. Really? I mean, after Walter died? Yeah. But, I I mean, it's still going. Uh, A lot of good studios in town these days, though. (laughs) A lot of not-so-good ones, too. Yeah, well, they have, you know, Sears Sound, besides the just the the legacy or whatever, it's a great mic selection. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the challenge of a place like Sears Sound too. Like if you go, if you're going to make a record at Sears Sound, you better get your eight hours the night before <laughs> and make sure you're in good shape. Otherwise, you know, you are, I, if I, if I played a shitty session at Sears Sound, that would present an existential crisis to me that I might not overcome. <laughs> I don't know if I'm actually that daunted by, uh, I mean, I've played for Rupert Neve for him. Really? Yeah. Rupert Neve is friends with my good friend Ryland Angel, who's an amazing countertenor singer. Yeah. He and I collaborated this year on a, a big piece for, at the University of Minnesota with the student choir and all this stuff. And Ryland's amazing. But he's uh, friends with Rupert Neve, who's very old now. I can't remember how old he is. He's, uh, he's probably almost 90 now. Or, okay. Yeah. And lives in Texas, uh, and uh, Rupert is still making audio equipment, yeah. designing it, and is interested in experimenting with capturing the highest of the high uh, hertz above the hearing threshold of hearing, and as such was recording solo instruments, uh, various types, and so I was hanging out with Ryland and we went and met him and at this big studio out in the middle of nowhere in Texas and a very country and Western vibe Uh and um, beautiful. I can't remember the name of it around something like blue rock, but anyway, uh, and there was Rupert and I played solo guitar for Rupert. And then because he's a very uh, devout Christian gentleman, we played, uh, yeah, we played, uh, 
It Is Well With My Soul with Ryland singing and I was doing electric guitar, you know, looping and pads, like atmospheric version. And that was pretty incredible yeah. to play for Rupert Neve. So, uh, because everyone knows that basically he's the, he's, he's the, the Yoda of he's sound. The, he's the architect yeah. of most of what we associate with the recording studio yeah. and, and the quality side of it, especially did not he, just the vision. What did he say about your performance? He loved it. He yeah. loves, well, basically, basically as soon as Ryland sings, he's happy. He just loves Ryland and his, Ryland's voice and Ryland has a beautiful voice. So, yeah. so I, I, and Ryland came up, uh, with a minister for a father. And came, so I came up singing in church and, uh, he's British, uh-huh. uh, and came up kind of through that tradition as right. it were. And so, yeah, it was very, it was very relaxed, but, but, uh, yeah, Rupert, <laughs> Jesus, it was pretty interesting. Do you? Um, but anyway, I don't get too nervous. Yeah, I get nervous about playing. Period. So, right. so the studio after a while is just going to be a studio to me. I'm too fixated on not sounding like an idiot. Right. Uh, and I get nervous. I get tight, tense. Still. Oh yeah. That hasn't subsided in the Mm-mm. decades long playing no. you've been doing. No. I don't get nervous for Wilco gigs. Really? I, I feel like I know exactly what to do, and I, everybody yeah. in the band's going to bring it, and it's just super enjoyable. Has its own kind of frenzy about it that mm-hmm. I look forward to, uh, just pure immersion, you know. But then executing difficult musical passages, I'll always screw them up. I mean, I have no composure whatsoever. I'll just get <laughs> tense and f- screw up. Wait, how much time. Of, the, of you screwing up is you getting your own way with the nervousness? It's pretty much what it what it is. I because yeah. I can practice until I'm blue in the face and then still mess up. Right. Do you get nervous if you're going into a free improv situation with someone whose music no. you enjoy? That's the only thing I feel like relaxed about really in music making is complete spontaneous improvisation. Yeah. And there have been occasions too that come to mind uh, where I. I felt like I could not find a connection with this person that I was playing with, which I find very rare. I mean, almost never. Yeah, you can't. That you I can't just find couldn't. Something. I couldn't get anything going. Yeah, with these gentlemen, um, and which was a crushing feeling. And I'm not used to having a crushing feeling. Did you I'm internalize that and say like there must be something wrong with me? For a while. Yeah. Until I realized it was kind of not just me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail. Of course, because, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, both of these gentlemen have passed away, um, and one of them I was very excited to play with, but uh-huh. it was just it just couldn't didn't click. Couldn't get it going. Yeah. Do you? But you know, I I've played gigs before with people that you know, you know, I'd been fans of a long time, and you know, the music may have been fine, but socially maybe the hang was a little weird which I would then internalize and really beat the hell out of myself for. Well, yeah. It can the social thing can have an effect for sure. I I find that uh at this point in my life I'm amazed at how basically super nice everybody is and everything's really comfy. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I don't there's not a lot of a lot of hazing or attitude or whatever. I just I'm not around people like that anymore. Well, I, I mean, at this point, you've also graduated from having to deal with any of that bullshit. No, I mean, but I I just do stuff when people ask if it seems like a good idea. I don't have a fee, and I don't right. I don't have a plan. 
you know i never had a plan i just wanted to play really yeah uh in the early days it was all about the idea of writing one's own music and playing something quote unquote original you know uh-huh. so that's why uh i never did journeyman type work really you mean like i don't have those skills yeah right. i mean like like bar bands and right. like you know, people who know a million songs uh, because they played at a million weddings or, you know, I never did any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother and I had designed our lives around the idea of playing our own music because that's what we were digging in the 70s mm-hmm. when we were getting more serious. Besides our fixation on rock and roll in the 60s, by the 70s, or by 71, we were listening to, uh, this is when I finally heard John Coltrane, but then that led to us checking out Miles and Eric Dolphy and whatever, but also as the creation of what jazz rock, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mojave Schnee Orchestra, of course, uh, first Weather Report record, Herbie's band, uh, Tony Williams' Lifetime, and then also my brother jumped straight off into all the AACM stuff, and so we were listening to the Art Ensemble of Chicago and. Braxton, Leo Smith, such a uh, huge world. Listening, of... listening to all this music, really all in the early to mid seventies, and then the, you know getting into the ECM world and the European jazz, and I was listening, still listening to Ralph Towner, and and just a lot of information that was extremely inspiring, but also uh, kind of throwing down the gauntlet, like, hey, it's time to figure out some music, you know, and. Uh, what everyone was doing on the loft scene here in New York, which we were fascinated by, was releasing their own music. So it was basically all about doing your own music. And mm-hmm. that's what we thought we would do. And that's what we did in high school is have a band that played all original music. For uh, We had one year we played at, we would always play at lunchtime at our high school. It's the only gig we could get. Mm-hmm. Um, so one year we played, <laughs> we played a couple of covers. We played uh, a song by John McLaughlin from Devotion. I can't think of the name of the song right now. We played that. We played What I Say from Live Evil, Miles, which is just a riff mm-hmm. for the most part and an excuse to jam out, you know. But but no, I didn't know a million songs, you know. It was never the guy I could walk in. I still am not the guy I can walk into a music store and sound like a badass playing by myself through some you know, testing out an amp, like, like, right. like, whoa, dude, we'll listen to that. You know, I'm like, uh, I, I hate even being heard in a music oh, it's store. horrifying. Yeah. It's the worst. <laughs> so, uh, and other people would like, there'd be the kid growing up who could just rip on day tripper, just play the day tripper riff. And you just look at this person in wonder and say, how could anybody be yeah. so hot shit? You know? And I couldn't play day tripper back then. But now, I mean, like, I was looking, so like on the lover's record, like you're doing a lot of music that is not original music. Correct. And when you now approach music like that, is it, is there a sense of, was there a sense of, of 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 maturity or a sense of experience? That I already had? have an answer for you, and I don't even know what you're going to ask. All right, me. All right, yeah. What, what's the answer? 
I think that this is like an incredible leap of faith on my part because it's like acting as if, as they say, <laughs> acting as if I could actually play a good solo on these kinds of songs, like the right. people I admire. And in, in reality, I can't because I didn't ever actually take the time or have the discipline to transcribe a solo or figure out what that chord substitution was that so-and-so plays yeah. that sounds so badass. And so it's all kind of... Uh, safe. It's pretty safe the way I play a lot of that music because I don't have a lot of uh, experience. That's why I basically tell people I'm not a real jazz player. Right. You know, um, I just wanted this record to have certain emotions and moods and to embrace uh, a diverse uh, roster of composers and sources. You know, mm -hmm. and and in that way uh, make a statement. Uh, about I guess a certain you know Catholic aesthetic sensibility, but also a, a little bit about who I am and where I come from and what's important to me mm -hmm. and has been important to me over the course of my life. So, uh, so in that way, it's almost more like a pop dude making a singing on a, a jazz record, like Rod Stewart does the standards <laughs> or whatever, you know. Uh, as far as pedigree goes, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's it's not my language, really. Like, I'm not but, even sure what my language is anymore because I just do kind of a little of everything. Now, right. And I didn't plan any of that. But when you say you played it safe, I mean, you, you conscientiously said, when I play these solos, you know, I'm not going to try and push it. I'm going to stay in the key and... Yeah, I mean, I guess I just wanted tropes. to... Yeah. Well, I don't think there's too many tropes because I don't even know if I know those. <laughs> Seriously. You know, I mean, I have a couple of turnarounds, I guess, but it's all yeah. in my mind. It's all based on on my assessment or my analysis theoretically of what's going on. So, and where you and fit into that. Yeah. I mean, that's how I play. It's basically it's all based on whatever knowledge I have that's theoretical musical knowledge and then trying to play melodies or sounds that are in my head that relate to that. Uh huh. Or that fit into that. And so there is a kind of, I think, on Lovers, a kind of jazz by numbers uh, aspect to my playing that I wish wasn't there. I wish I could do some super savvy, you know, lead-ins to whatever. And I don't you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but it still was enjoyable to listen to the result because I think it achieved uh, the mood that I was looking for and the mm -hmm. statement about... Uh, this kind of wide ranging if, um, and possibly even too vague, but uh, idea about romance and music and intimacy and sexuality mm -hmm. and, and how uh, any kind of art, not just music can address that or it somehow shape it in one's consciousness. And, and then, in, and how I reacted to it, you know, from the jazz side or the American songbook as people kept mentioning as mm -hmm. the, or without saying that not everyone was American or or somehow leaving out um, I, I love the idea of of somebody calling the American songbook uh, something that includes Sonic Youth and Annette Peacock well that's the thing I, I looked at, you look at the composers and I would that, that that's not what they meant how I would describe it as the American but, songbook but that's what it kept you know many reviews kept mentioning yeah, that side of it right you know um I actually had the the honor and thrill actually of meeting Annette Peacock a couple of weeks really? ago. Well, she played uh, well maybe a week ago. She played in town and 
she had heard Lovers because I sent her a copy. Yeah. Of my, uh, my friend G.E. is Facebook friends with her, and I don't do Facebook. <laughs> so uh, and, uh, a lot of people I know are kind of friends with her on Facebook, it seems. Okay. But, um, well, not a lot, a handful. Right. A lot of people still don't know who she is. I, Where does she The live? younger generation. She lives up in Woodstock uh-huh. or near Woodstock. I, I hesitate to say she lives in Woodstock because I've learned that people say so-and-so lives in Woodstock, and then it turns out they live 45 minutes from Woodstock in some whole other little town. <laughs> yeah, I'm New York, it's all Woodstock. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, But I think she actually does live in Woodstock. Yeah. But anyway, I met her after the show because she was told by a couple of musician friends of mine that I was coming, uh-huh. and uh, and she was told me that she was so thrilled that she was included with those composers on a record because right. that... that that someone could have thought of her work as commensurate with that of Jerome Kern or, or uh, Jimmy you know, could, or yeah, Hammerstein Moore, <laughs> yeah, Hammerstein and yeah. Uh, 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 Mancini, yeah, and uh, that that made sense to her, but that was also thrilling, and and that made me really happy, and that made her happy. Yeah, so, of course. Um, but I never thought about it as like a a novelty or as, as kind of, it just made sense to me. It just seemed like if I'm trying to create a, a record based on my likes and dislikes, uh, re- relating to this theme mm-hmm. of mood music, romance, uh, that all these things are equal in my mind. Sure. You know, it's well, just it's all, it's I mean, not you're, exactly you're rocket science. On some level, painting an autobiographical picture. Right. You know, it's the playing, it's the musicians, it's the compositions, it's it's the it's all of these things, but also, you know, it's your playlist. Yeah. It's your mixtape. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, it's the low key mixtape for yeah. sure. You know, I I knew that I was going to issue uh distortion, although I used a little bit of distortion on uh So Hard It Hurts by Annette Peacock uh-huh. to get a little bit more. There's the only the only reference to violence on the record but i felt that to be honest it had to have there's some kinky things in the record and, and there needs to be some violent <laughs> sure. at least one reference to violence yeah which certainly sexuality has a violent component and uh, uh and originally i wasn't going to do any looping or any of that stuff right. and then i realized as we got as michael and i uh were working on the arrangements and and i was working uh just emailing with david breskin who produced it about the song list, uh, which was long, um, I realized that in order for it to actually be me mm-hmm. playing that music, I did want to bring some looping in and some detuning of the guitar and and uh, do my thing. Mm-hmm. On, not on everything, but on a few pieces. Uh, and that was a surprise, actually. To you. I was going to do when I, when I came up with the idea for the record, which was I think in the late '80s, probably. Um, it was definitely not going to have anything but a straight, so-called jazz guitar sound through the whole record, mm-hmm. and that was the idea I had in my head for twenty some years. But I mean, how much of that was you presenting a challenge to yourself, saying, "Hey, this is something that I don't have in my back pocket. Therefore, I'm going to strive for it." Mm, no, it wasn't that. It was just the idea that it should fit into uh, uh-huh. uh, an oeuvre or whatever. A, 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 I don't think it's a genre. Just, I guess, a stream of other right. records that are similar but not as as darkly perverse as how I had 
he originally was, come up with right. the Lovers record, which was much darker when I first sure. thought of it than it ended up being. But I, f- I feel like a lot of times, you know, you come up with an idea, one comes up with an idea uh, for like a structure or a set of limitations to, to realize a project. Then you get to a point where there's enough breakthroughs or the breakthrough that you need that like you say, oh, I don't need to be that strict about that. I could bring this other stuff in because the, the integri- integrity of the structure is already there. That's basically it. Yeah. You nailed it. That's what happened. I mean, we had everything we needed. We just needed my voice to be on everything, which yeah. is that in itself is pretty daunting because I think if you listen to something like, you know, Stan Gets Focus or uh, Sketches of Spain or uh, all of these uh, orchestrated, conceptual, conceptually tight and also still moody, pretty smooth records, the horn really can front that more, I guess, compellingly than an electric guitar that sounds, let's say, very conservative yeah. um, sonically or tonally. Yeah. Um, and I'm also not infatuated with the sound of of a, of a wailing, badass lead guitar in an orchestrated setting, even though, no, 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 you no. know, it's just not my thing. Like as Saturday much as Night I Live. love, well, no, I'm just thinking about something like listening to Jeff Beck do something like right. that. I, I would definitely listen to it because I think he's utterly remarkable and has created this amazing language on the guitar. Right. But that's definitely not where I was going to go. And there's not going to be any heroics, you know, I didn't want to go heroic. Yeah. I kind of generally don't. I like drama, but heroics, guitar heroics can be very off-putting. Off-putting and not, yeah, maybe not so compelling all the time. Even though I always overplay pretty much, but but it's, I'm not going for heroic. I think I just have too many notes in my head. Are you still uh, developing new musical relationships? Do you still meet people that you play with? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, ever since I moved to New York, it's actually kind of nonstop amazing that I keep meeting people who are mind blowing and often end up playing with somebody I don't know who blows my mind. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all the time. Yeah. That's, that's, that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, it's a deep series of deep benches out there. Uh, I had a few years ago, I had the experience of being asked to play uh, there's this man named Ramey Egan who's obsessed with The Last Waltz, uh-huh. the band's last concert right. ever. So he wanted to recreate the entire concert with a, kind of a core band and then a whole bunch of guests. Okay. Much like the last concert. Right. And, uh, and I got asked to do the two Eric Clapton songs. Okay. And, uh, and I mean the complete, not the movie, the complete, the, the actual concert. So there's a really, really not particularly interesting song that's not in the movie. And uh-huh. then there's Further On Up the Road, which is a shuffle blues where he does his blues thing. And the first concert was in San Francisco at the Warfield, where Ramey lives. The rest of them have now subsequently been in Porchester at the Capitol Theater. And mm. not every year, but almost every year. I think there's there have been four of them now. And I've done them all. Wow. But... Uh, and without getting into the impact of that music or whether one loves it or hates it or any of that, it did have, uh, every time does have this, this kind of lift to it that I f- find remarkable. Hmm. But beyond that, 
I was listening to these guys play. I knew a couple of them. Who, who else was in the Well, band? like Stuart Bogey was there. Oh, he's the best. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, oh and uh, Rob Berger was there on the first one. Also but he only did great. that one. Um, Trixie Whitley was on the first one. She only did the first one. So these were only people I was kind of either knew or was aware of or f- sort of friendly with. And I realized that almost everybody playing in this band, and they sounded incredible, was from Brooklyn. They're all living in Brooklyn. And mm-hmm. now here we are in San Francisco. I thought it was going to be all a bunch of West Coast people. And I was amazed at how incredibly well everyone is playing this music. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, another bench, another right. Brooklyn bench right. of, of super accurate uh, yet not boring guys and girls playing 70s early 70s late 60s rock and r&b soul stuff yeah and so was the anti-ballas horns and uh scott metzger and uh sam cohen was the musical director still is these guys were just playing now marco benevento does the mm-hmm. it's a lot it's a whole lot of people involved mm-hmm. but anyway phenomenal phenomenal players and that's just a that world and then who knows how many people that are 23 uh that are just into that kind of music there might be that i haven't heard yet yeah. you know because i for example know uh some young musicians um one of whom i've known since he was a week old who lives in new york and is an incredible woodwind player who's that uh his name's jasper dutes okay and uh and i've now played some a little bit with him he, he's phenomenal and yeah and a, a keyboard player who worked on this project in minneapolis with ryland angel that i mentioned this project the call his name's ben rosenblum uh-huh. and he's a fantastic jazz piano player but also plays accordion and helped with our arrangements um and and I feel like, and it turns out they're friends and actually play together, which I didn't even know. I knew them independently in different from different areas, mm-hmm. and and then if I extrapolate from there, how many other twenty five year olds might be out there doing insane they're everywhere high level music they're everywhere? Yeah. So so yeah, I'm gonna keep meeting yeah people and collaborating with people who are way more skilled than me, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this has been really fun. I'm glad you came over again. This was Me too. This is one of the ones where like over the years a lot of people have have commented. This is actually uh, my mom's favorite episode of the whole podcast was the one that we did. How interesting. I got a call from her. She goes, "This guy nails. Sounds really interesting." <laughs> Whoa. Thanks, mom. <laughs> All right, thanks. Where's she? She lives between Australia and Georgia. Half half and half. Woo! Yeah. That's some shit. Where in Australia? What city? Eastside. Um, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. In- really? Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. It's something. Tell her I said good day. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was round two. Round two with Nels Klein. Such just an engaged and wonderful dude to talk to. Uh, This music that's playing behind me, this is from his record Lovers that we talked about, 2016. Gorgeous. Uh, Definitely check this record out. Such, such an exceptional piece of work. And uh, check out Nels. I really, really dig that. Uh, I wish I saw more of Nels. 
He's a good cat. Go to NelsKlein.com. Go see, if you live on the fucking West Coast, go see his band in February. Don't be stupid, okay? Sorry, that was aggressive. Um, yeah, Happy New Year. Go to the 5049 website. Maybe pick up a t-shirt or buy a CD. And if you've written me an email sometime in the last five years, I'm going to be responding to it. I'm, I'm pretty bad with that stuff. All right. Hope you guys are good. Hope you're happy. We'll see you next year.